0: Zero, got nothing to lose. Maybe we'll make something.
1: Be myself, I got nothing to prove.
2: You got a fast car. I got a plan. Inside of here, been working at the convenience store. Managed to save just a little bit of money. want wanted to drive too far. Cross the border and into the city And you and I can
3: both a see what it means to be living
0: See my home man has got a problem Give her the bottle, that's the way it is His body's too old for work
3: His body's
0: too young to look
3: like his One of the highlights from last night's Grammy Awards, Tracy Chapman performing alongside Luke Combs with a song that takes us back decades and Fast Car. I have to be honest, when Fast Car was originally released, I was not a fan in the least. It's grown on me over time, and by over time, I mean by over the decades. But when it was first out, I'm like, who is this person singing this song in such a low key way. I mean, it's a fast car. Let's get let's get into it. Let's do a little bit of running down the running down a dream like uh, Tom Petty or something. Anyway, it was uh, one of the highlights for sure of last night's Grammy Awards along with and I it was a decision. It was a tough decision today. Which song from last night's performances where we going to open the show with, because if you missed Joni Mitchell's performance as well, holy Hannah, legendary stuff from an absolute legend. And I'm not much for awards shows, you know, but some of those highlights certainly caught my attention. And I guess when it comes to the Grammys specifically, I might not be much for the awards shows because I don't pay much attention to the modern music. I am stuck firmly in the 1970s, and ding, dang it, I'm happy there. Although the 80s and 90s and some of the new stuff has its place, but when the show is almost entirely over one's head, it takes away uh, a little bit from it. But there were some great performances last night. That one right there from Luke Combs, who has covered, and rather successfully, Tracy Chapman's hit, Fast Car, and Tracy Chapman joined him on stage last night to perform Fast Car, as part of the Grammy Awards. It is seven minutes after nine on this Monday morning, the 5th of February. This is the first Monday in the month of February. And how about that weekend? I'm just thinking back on beginning the show last week, late January, our 5th Monday of January, and thinking, is this month ever going to end? It feels like you should get through January, and it should be Christmas again. But finally, we got ourselves some weather this weekend, and I'm pleased to report that it followed us all the way to Erie with the Kitchener Rangers. We were also blessed with the same beautiful sunshine on Saturday in Erie that you had here, and then back home yesterday to enjoy it as well. What a treat it was. And I was, I mean, as gloomy as the story is, I'm somewhat heartened that it wasn't just me. And I know you probably heard me complain about it quite a bit in the month of January. Like, where was the sun? And you've no doubt heard by now that we received, saw about 17 hours of sunlight over the month of January this year, which is about a quarter of what we usually get. A typical January sees 80 hours of sunlight, and we only got 17 hours of sunlight in January this year. So what, like basically half an hour a day if you were to break it down like that? Very gloomy. On the other hand, it's not like we've had to deal with a lot of snow. It reminds me very much of a West Coast slash Vancouver winter. And, And most of me thinks... I'll deal with the easier driving, easier shoveling, easier walking, etc. But boy, oh boy, a little bit of sunshine goes a long way. And I hope you felt that as much as I felt that over the course of the weekend. One is
4: the loneliest
3: number that you'll ever do. All right, let's take a look at your Farwell Show 5 for this Monday morning, February the 5th. Five things for you to keep in mind for the day. Number one, the case involving five players from Canada's 2018 World Junior Hockey Team accused of sexual assault heads to court for the first time today in London, which marks a new phase in a multi-year scandal that has scarred the national game. London police also expected to hold a news conference this afternoon to share information about the case, and we will have a reporter there. Number two on your Farwell Show 5 this morning... I just talked about the weather here, and it may have been gloomy in January, but not a whole lot of snow. A state of emergency, meantime, remains in effect in parts of Cape Breton, as Nova Scotia digs out from one of the heaviest snowfalls in 20 years. More than 80 centimeters of snow was reported in eastern Nova Scotia and Cape Breton. The Maritime's bracing for even more today, so as we deal with a bit of a false spring here in Ontario, they are getting battered. Down east. Number three on your Farwell Show 5 today, the federal government says foreign nationals and companies will be banned from buying residential properties in Canada for an additional two years, carrying the ban until 2027, when it was originally set to expire at the beginning of 2025. Number four, Canada is going to host 13 games for the 2026 FIFA World Cup, six of them in Toronto, including the opening game on Canadian soil for the Canadian men's team. And number five on your Farwell Show five list for today, Taylor Swift made a little history with her Album of the Year award at the Grammys, winning the trophy for a record fourth time.
5: I want to say thank you to the fans by
1: telling you a secret that I've been keeping from you for the last two years which is that my brand new album comes out April 19th. It's called called the Tortured Poets Department. I'm going to go and post the cover right now backstage. Thank you. I love you. Thank you.
3: Swifties, you've got two months to get ready for the Tortured Poets Department. Taylor Swift winning Album of the Year at the Grammys last night. The Record of the Year went to Miley Cyrus for... Flowers don't ask me the difference between the album and the record of the year. And that is your Farwell Show five for this Monday morning. It is nine twelve. You're listening to City News five seventy. You want to be a part of the fun, the frivolity, the shenanigans? Every day we begin the show, phone lines open to you. Call us anytime at 519-570-2545, star 570, and 1-800-570-5715. You know, you can also email Mike at 570news.com, Facebook The Mike Farwell Show, great picture of the All-Star Game MVP there right now. You all know who that is. I can't give you an AM on AM in the AM because he didn't play last night. But the MVP of the All-Star Game, and you can hate all you want on our Facebook page. I'm just going to chuckle right along. Greatest hockey player of all time. Anyway, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, Instagram, at Farwell, underscore W-R. Let's get to the phones. Say good morning to Kevin. Good morning, Kevin.
6: Hello, good morning, Mike. How are you?
3: I'm good, thank you. And you?
6: I'm doing great, thank you very much. Except that uh, there's something that has been bothering me since last night at the end of the Grammy Awards. I don't know if you had a chance to watch them. I mean, go and
5: watch it. Um,
3: I, I had to go to bed earlier than the end, Kevin, so now you can fill me in on what I missed. <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, uh, Celine Dion, she was a surprise presenter, and I mean, it's really made us all happy to see her, that she's on this stage, and, you know, she's, you know, standing tall and everything. But the thing that really bothered me, and I lost a lot of respect for Taylor Swift, was that when she announced her as a winner, and when she went to the stage, I mean, she did not even make an eye contact with Celine Dion. She disrespected her. She didn't even acknowledge that Celine Dion is standing there she gave a hug and, you know, kisses to everybody. And, you know, imagine, you know, when you're in a, in a party and there is somebody walks in and say hi to everybody. They don't even, like, look at you. Like, what's going on? How come he's not saying hi to me? And all to the, I thought maybe she's going to acknowledge that, well, it's an honor to receive my award from, you know, legendary. Nothing. Nothing. And I'm like, whoa, even my daughter was getting beside me. And am like, what's going on here? <laughs> what is, what, how come she doesn't like Celine Dion? Anyway, that was in my test. I had to let it out, and I lost a lot of respect for Taylor Taylor Swift.
3: All right, Kevin. I I appreciate the call. I don't know if there's beef between Celine and Taylor, but we'll see if we can learn more in the days or hours ahead. Things seem to uh, go pretty quickly online these days. We'll find out. Is there beef? Does she just not like Celine Dion? Did we miss something here? We'll find out. Jersey Bill, good morning.
4: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think I'll call about, about uh, Taylor Swift later and uh, the whole ridiculous uh, deal of what's going on with her and uh, the NFL. But um, I, I, what really struck me was uh, it's about the NFL and also about uh, ice hockey, and that is this crazy... Uh, uh, games that supposedly are all star games. It's just they they don't even make any attempt. Uh, I just <laughs> watching the watch little, watching a little bit of uh, the uh, the hockey all star game. You know they're they're essentially going at at maybe half speed. You know not going to hurt each other and I and and of course the <laughs> the flag football the fifty the yard uh, field and the, the whole nonsense with the NFL. Why don't they just do away with the game aspect of it and just. Stick with with the uh, with the skills. You, know, you got the best players in the world. You know, uh, emphasize the, sk- the skills contest and forget these phony games, which uh, really, really sort of look ridiculous and don't need to be played.
3: Billy, I appreciate that call. I look forward to hearing from you again during the twelve o'clock talkback hour. If you wish to talk about Taylor Swift, the National Football League, and all of the unnecessary attention being paid Swift, and by that I mean let her go there and enjoy games with her boyfriend's family. How this has become so politicized, well, I guess because Republicans are waiting for Taylor Swift to endorse Joe Biden, thus making her the enemy of Republicans. I don't know. The young lady is under the microscope, to be sure, as if she wasn't before she started dating a football player who's going to the Super Bowl, nonetheless. Great point Billy made on the All-Star game. Look, I love me some ice hockey. I do, you know that. I was actually broadcasting a game in Erie, Pennsylvania on Saturday while the All-Star festivities were happening in Toronto. And I get the idea of the All-Star weekend I mean, you want to bring the players a little closer to the fans. You want to have some fun, et cetera. I think it's a pretty good PR exercise. But to play the actual game, I wonder if they could just do away with it, find another way to sort of make the weekend what it is. Because Billy's right. There's there's just no point. The Pro Bowl, the NHL All-Star Game, the NBA All-Star Game, the best one we all know is baseball's All-Star Game. And a quick Google search has... Uh, informed me that Taylor Swift and Celine Dion were engaged in a sweet embrace backstage at the Grammys last night. Despite fan speculation that surfaced on social media, suggesting that Swift ignored Dion when she received her Album of the Year award, the two appeared to be in high spirits backstage. But the internet is always going to internet. They seem pretty happy together backstage. So maybe it wasn't a snub At all. Maybe, just maybe, with all of our sights set on Taylor Swift, we're looking for reasons to find flaws. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Bill sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. How about that version of O Canada from the All-Star Game on the weekend? If you missed what I said earlier in response to Billy's call about the All-Star Game, and really how the All-Star Game for hockey is a bit of a sham, because it is, just like every All-Star Game except the baseball All-Star Game. But I was away in Erie, broadcasting a Kitchener Rangers game and paid zero attention to the NHL All-Star game. And I probably would have paid zero attention anyway because it's not really my cup of tea. So sorry, I missed whatever, quote-unquote, that version of o Canada" is and or was. Maybe I need to spend more time on the internet, or maybe not. Like, I do actually try to dial it back especially on weekends when I've got some quiet time, some family time, some time away from work. I use it quite a bit for work as a tool for what we do here. There is an opportunity for you to keep up with what's going on with our show in various places online. But I missed whatever version of O Canada it is that Bill refers to in his email. I can tell you what I think about this show today. And I'm pretty excited to have these conversations with you, including the conversations that you lead between noon and one. We'll open up the phone lines as we do every day for the 12 o'clock talk back hour. So that's your opportunity to start a conversation. Let us know what's on your mind. 1130 this morning, of course, because it's Monday, David Drew joins us with Drew's views. We'll get David's perspective on things that are on his mind, usually from a federal political nature. Uh, at 11 this morning, there's a new campaign that's calling out the region of Waterloo for defunding the arts. And we've been hearing these concerns raised for the last number of weeks. Now it gets formalized in a bit of a campaign. And as you know, I'm a big supporter of arts and culture in our community and what the sector can bring to our economy as a whole. So we'll learn more about this campaign at 11 this morning, Just over an hour from now, our friends at the Food Bank of Waterloo Region will talk to us about food insecurity and we'll do a somewhat deeper dive into exactly what that means. Just over 30 minutes from now, as you know, we are in a housing crisis, an affordability crisis, and one attempt to build more homes in Cambridge is getting pushback from Cambridge Council. This proposed development for stacked townhouses on Blair Road has been turned down by council. We'll see where it goes from here. But we're going to hear from one of the residents who would be displaced if this new townhouse complex was built. So we'll get that in about 30 minutes time, just after 10. And right now, it's time to get you to the City News Centre for an update. After that, there is a new cell phone policy for students at the Waterloo Region District School Board. We'll talk about that coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. I'm going to come at this... First story for formal conversation today in a couple of ways. I'll take you back to last week when I shared with you during the Farwell Show 5, which is a little something we do at the beginning of the show every day. A few tidbits for you to keep in mind, to be aware of. And one of those things on the Farwell Show 5 one day last week was word out of Toronto where the Toronto District School Board had a committee created a new policy on the use of mobile devices that would likely restrict their use, although an outright ban in schools was unlikely. So when that happened in Toronto, I suggested to you then that we may not be all that far away from something similar here. And that's, in fact, exactly where we find ourselves. Now, before I get into what is new in at least one of our public high schools here in the region, I want to share with you the difficulty that we had in reaching the Waterloo Region District School Board to have a conversation about this. And the reason I want to share that is because I just want to stress the point that the school board is a publicly funded entity. And as such works for the public so whether you're comfortable or uncomfortable talking about a certain subject it is your very job to do that and i find it incredibly frustrating to go through a public facing public organization and get stonewalled when we make attempts to reach people for comment and i will also say i I'm a big fan of what is being done with cell phones in at least one of our public high schools. I say at least one because we reached very early this morning. In fact, it came in at 9.33 this morning, which is during the news with Christine Clark. And the statement, which is not a conversation, this is why I get frustrated A statement is just what the school board wants to say, as opposed to having a conversation about any of the whys behind it. But it says currently a number of Waterloo Region District secondary schools have been reviewing cell phone expectations with students, staff, and community, and as a result have implemented new approaches, which establish clearer guidelines and expectations for student cell phone and smartphone use, leading to positive results. Again, as I said at the outset, I'm a, I'm a fan of the new approach, at least at one of the schools, but just to emphasize the point, as a public institution, you might get criticism for decisions, you might get support for decisions, but your job is to be transparent to the public that funds you. So, let's talk about, and the reason I know this is because I have a student at Eastwood Collegiate in Kitchener. That's where our daughter attends school. And we, as parents, received this notification last week about cell phones during instructional time. As educators and administrators, we have a responsibility to cultivate an environment conducive to learning and for the well-being of our students. We know that when students experience a sense of community in their learning, their achievement and well-being benefit. Cell phones have positive uses, but in classrooms, they can lead to distracted, disengaged students who are socially isolated from their peers and their learning. We know that limiting the use of cell phones during the school day will benefit the students in many ways. Our efforts to change the way we use cell phones in our school are supported by a significant amount of research which has been done in regard to to this topic, I'd like to know a little more about the research. See, this is the kind of thing we could do if we had a conversation. Some of the benefits of removing cell phone use in learning spaces are increasing self-esteem, connecting with others, remaining attentive, enhancing academic performance, making responsible choices, being more engaged in activities, retaining information, and improving time management skills. In light of this evidence, we are asking students to stow their devices during class time in order to allow them to focus on their learning and not their cell phones. Our objective is to strike a balance that promotes responsible and mindful technology usage in conjunction with the advantages listed above. We acknowledge the significance of technology in our students' lives, yet we firmly believe that safeguarding their academic success, emotional well-being, and positive social interactions remain paramount. Effective February 2nd, which was last Friday, staff will be asking that students put away cell phones during instructional time as well as in hallways during classes. Should your child need to contact you during instructional time, they may come to the office to call you. If your child needs their phone for accommodated reasons, please speak with their classroom teacher as a way to empower learning in the classroom, Eastwood Collegiate Institute will be implementing these progressive processes. So, no phones in the classroom, no phones in the hallway. If your child needs you, they can go to the office and make a call. What a great idea! I'm fully in support of restricting the use of cell phones in classrooms. I don't know if this applies in elementary schools. Again, what we learned from the school board very late via a statement is that a number of secondary schools have been reviewing cell phone expectations with students, staff, and community and have implemented new approaches. There you go. That's what the approach is at Eastwood. I think it's fantastic. I think we should adopt it across the board if it's not already across the board. Can't tell because it's a pretty vague statement from the public institution that is the WRDSB. How do you feel about this idea of restricting the use of cell phones in classrooms and in hallways at your child's school? would love to hear your thoughts on this at 519-570-2545, star 570, -570 1-800-570-5715. Best way to learn? Eliminate the distractions. And quite frankly, the best learning that could come from this? is learning that you can live without your phone. I think it's fantastic. Cross the board. Love to hear your thoughts. We'll take your calls right after this on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Effective Friday this past at the beginning of a new term in at least one public high school here in the region, Eastwood, staff will be asking that students put away cell phones during instructional time as well as in hallways during classes. Should your child need to contact you during instructional time, they may come to the office to call you. And if your child needs their phone for accommodated reasons, you can speak with their classroom teacher. It makes a ton of sense for a ton of reasons from where I'm sitting. And whether or not this is clarity on existing rules or the implementation of new ones, it sounds like this is something new because it says that there are efforts to change the way we use cell phones In our school. And among the benefits, the school tells us about increasing self esteem, connecting with others, enhancing academic performance, and the list goes on. I think this is an excellent idea across the board. If it is only at one rogue school, kudos to you, former rebels, now lions at Eastwood Collegiate Institute, for implementing such a policy. There is no reason at all for a child, a student, to have their cell phone in class. There, there, just, there just isn't. The class time is meant to be instructional time. And when it comes to doing the group work or the individual work that a teacher assigns, then you do that work. And one would not need one's cell phone in order to do that. I think one of the best lessons that can come from this is to teach the student that they don't need to rely on that ding-dang phone. five one nine five seventy twenty five forty five star 570, one 570 5715 Kathy, good morning.
0: Good morning. Oh, I agree with you. More than 100% on this one. Uh, I've seen the effects of this in the workplace with the young people. Um, There's a real problem with the tradespeople and the manufacturing industry when they get new hires coming in who are so attached to their phones that they can't do the hands-on work. It's causing assembly lines to be shut down. They put strict rules on it. They've actually confiscated the phones from the staff. in one of the manufacturing plants where I have a relative working in Guelph, they last about two weeks and they leave. And then the company has to get people in and train them again, and it's a vicious cycle. This is costing all of us money that we don't realize out there. There are consequences. Um, A lot of social issues going on with this, but there was a book talked about on this talk radio station called iGen, and it was published in um, 2017, talking about the consequences of uh, all of the phone use with the young people. They have to learn how to put it down and do other hands-on things. And a point, in fact, is, remember Sick Kids Hospital last summer when they had a cyber attack and their, all their systems were down? And what did we hear? The, the hospital was able to stay open, open. They had to slow down because the nurses and the doctors had to do all of their record-keeping handwritten notes. How many people these days know how to write handwriting
7: anymore?
3: (laughs) That's an interesting point as well, Kathy. But I I like your point on productivity. And I can tell you at a time quite some time ago, we had a policy here at the radio station when I was uh, an afternoon news anchor. Thou shalt not have one's cell phone in the news booth, the anchor booth, because It's too much of a distraction. There's a lot going on in there. you got to be on top of your job. It certainly wasn't life or death, but it made for a better on-air product. And I don't think that should be too much to ask on the part of an employer. You're at work. While you're at work, work and get on your phone after, or if you need it that badly, on break. Kyle, good morning.
5: Good morning. You know what? I like the policy. Um, somebody called a couple of weeks ago and said, well, what, how do you get a hold of your kid? What, that's why they need a cell phone or if there's an emergency, it's pretty easy. You call the school and they call the kid down to the office. And Absolutely. You it that way. Right. There's, there's no excuse to have a, a cell phone in class at all. Um, I even tell my workers, you know, I mean, I understand they're on the road and stuff, right. But I always tell them, you know, just make sure that your, your work time is work time and if there's an emergency or whatever. That's, I get it, but there shouldn't be no excuses to be on social media and all that stuff all day. So. There you go. That's all I got to
3: say. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate the call. It's worked for generations, right? If there's an issue at the school, there is a connection from parent to school or from school to parent. It's called the main office. We can take care of anything we need to take care of in that way. We, We really do need to determine if the tail is wagging the dog or if the dog is wagging the tail. In this regard, again, I applaud Eastwood for this very progressive policy that was implemented as of Friday in the classrooms and the hallways during class time of their school. No need for the student to have the cell phone. This is the Mike Farwell show on City News 570. Quickly to an email from Paul on cell phones in classrooms. Paul writes to Mike at 570news.com. Are a lot of these people elected officials, and is this not the reason they're elected to make these decisions? Yes, they are, Paul. Yes, they are. Our school board trustees are elected. And staff that works for our school board, whether public or Catholic, are paid for by your provincial tax dollars, which is why... I bristle at attempting to get in touch with somebody, either on the board or on staff, to have conversations, at least through the public school board. It was very difficult. Uh, messages went out early Friday and were not responded to until we had begun our segment at 9.30 this morning. And to me, frankly, I'll just, I'll just be honest with you, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It's a publicly funded institution, transparency, is paramount, and we want to have some conversations. We may not always agree, but we have to have the conversations. And I don't think it's right that there may be, this is the perception I get, an expectation that one can communicate via one's own channels, by sending out statements, by posting things on websites, by posting videos, whatever. It, that's only a one way of delivering the message. It's a one-way street then. Communication involves two parties or more, right? Having a conversation, discussing ideas, gaining understanding. That's what it's supposed to be all about. And that's where, in my humble estimation, our public school board let us down here on the program this morning. We are going to get you to the City News Centre for an update and then a really interesting story coming out of Cambridge. And and I'll say this too. uh, Much like I said, credit to Eastwood Collegiate for its cell phone policy implemented as of last Friday, no cell phones in classrooms or in hallways during classroom time at the school credit to Cambridge council for having the courage to turn down a housing proposal. We know that we need more housing and there's the potential here that this ends up at the Ontario land tribunal and it overrules city council anyway. However, I like the stand that Cambridge Council has taken at this point. They're saying this proposal doesn't work. And and one of the reasons it doesn't is because it's going to displace people who have been living in this area for quite some time. And this is one of the biggest challenges I believe we face in building more housing. What happens when we're building it in a place where people have been living and probably living at reasonable rates for some time? We'll talk about this latest story to that regard out of Cambridge coming up. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News. City Council made it clear last week that they had no interest in a proposed stacked townhouse project that would be built on Blair Road. And they turned it down. Which I think is a somewhat courageous decision on Council's part because it's possible that the developer takes his or her case to the Ontario Land Tribunal and that entity overrules what the Municipal Council is doing in Cambridge and ends up giving the green light to the project anyway. We'll see where this ends up. But I think Cambridge Council made a really smart decision here, if not a courageous one and just delaying the inevitable. But there was a, a quote I heard from Cambridge Mayor Jan Liggett in the context of this conversation saying, we are here to build community not to put money in developers' pockets. I may be paraphrasing, but that was the gist of what we heard from Mayor Liggett. Michelle LaRiviere is a resident in one of the two existing rental homes that would be demolished to make way for this proposed stacked townhouse project. And Michelle makes time for our show this morning. Good morning, Michelle.
8: Good morning, Mike. Thank you so much for reaching out.
3: Well, thank you very much for making time to come on the show today to talk about this, because I assume it's a pretty stressful time for you and your fellow residents on Blair Road.
8: We've been uh, we've been under stress since the property was suddenly sold a year and a half ago. So, uh, yeah, everybody's been very stressed out, and it only ramped up Uh, Christmas Eve when the sign showed up on our front lawn uh, announcing the application for zoning bylaw amendment and the public meeting.
3: Did you have any indication, Michelle, once the property was sold that this was ultimately the plan?
8: Mm, Not initially. The previous owner was very, uh, very upfront that he planned on um, adding... Uh, adding something behind us. These are two narrow city lots that are long. Uh, They back onto the Canadian Pacific uh, Railway track, which is a very busy freight corridor. So he told us um, there will be construction at some point, but don't worry, Uh, you know, uh, you guys won't... uh, I won't be carrying anything down. You guys will... your housing is secure. So when the property was sold, the former owner said, uh, don't worry, everything will be fine, it'll be exactly the same. But within in less than two months, the new owner showed up with a chainsaw and heavy equipment and started uh, ripping down trees in the green space. And at that time, he just verbally said, "Uh, I'm tearing all this down in a year and a half anyway. So that's how we found out. It was shocking to find out that way. And we've all been dressed benign because our housing was suddenly insecure. And we were expecting, he said, a year and a half. That was August 2022. So we were just dressing, thinking that we would be evicted probably by Christmas that just passed. So, here we are. We're, yeah.
3: How long have you been living there, Michelle?
8: I've been here for almost five years. And uh, so, uh, for your listeners who haven't seen the news with photos, there's a fourplex of townhouses with our own front door and back door. It's sideways to the street, Blair, because the lot is narrow. So you just see the side of the building with no windows. And then there's the stone house, which is pretty much a historic uh, landmark in West Galt because it was the only house here at one time surrounded by cornfields. So it's a combined property with, uh, with one landlord. And uh, so one of the tenants has been here for 12 years. Uh, two of us have been here for almost five years. One has been here for three, three years, and then there's a Ukrainian couple who moved in in August and finally.
3: What would be, I mean, you mentioned housing insecurity a moment ago, Michelle. What would yeah. be the, the worst case scenario for you? If, if the application were to move forward and these new stacked townhouses were built, do you have any other options? What would happen to you?
8: Well, I've been looking at the market for a few years, and I realized that uh I think, as you said in your introduction, that we're paying uh our rents are from the time we moved in, what market was at that time. So I'm just over fifteen hundred right now, which was a lot to pay at that time. It's a lot of money, so uh another townhouse right now. A two-bedroom is in the twenty-four hundred to twenty-five hundred range. That's a thousand more per month. I can't do that, and most people can't, especially uh, singles and uh, single-income families. So i I've, I've been looking into van life, and uh, I would rather I would rather live in a camper van than be then spend all of my money on just trying to have a, a roof over my head.
3: Did you attend the public meeting about this?
8: I did. I was a delegate. I, I gave a PowerPoint and 15-minute uh, presentation representing the five families who live here, representing us.
3: And how did you feel about the way that meeting went for you?
8: we were well um, the consultant did a little presentation first talking up the proposal and it was evident immediately that council was not impressed for a very a number of reasons reasons not enough parking no wheelchair accessibility reduced amenities and all of that so we could see that council was not liking this proposal so then I did my presentation, and um, another uh, another um, person from the neighborhood, who would be uh, who's uh, there are condos on the property next to us that would be negative negatively impacted by the proposal, and where the stacked town townhouses were situated against the fence right by their patios. So Risa uh, gave her presentation representing her uh, her condos, and they're all homeowners. So council was very vocal. They were surprisingly vocal in their opposition to, to this uh, proposed development for a number of reasons, and especially because the property is not vacant. There are already buildings and families living here. And for this proposal to uh, go through, five families would have to be evicted with no place to go because we know there's a severe housing shortage right now. And, um, yeah, we, we would have nowhere to go.
3: Do you feel any more secure based on Council's opposition to this proposal?
8: We we have more hope than we did before. We feel optimistic. Um, we know that there will be an appeal, and of course uh, to the Ontario Land Tribunal, which uh, famously usually votes in favor of developers. However, we know that the province is under tremendous pressure right now to increase housing to increase affordable housing so the optics would be terrible for governments at multiple levels to be bulldozing existing affordable rental housing and putting families out on the street
3: michelle i really appreciate you uh stepping up as an advocate for your neighborhood and your neighbors and and for making time for the show this morning thank you very much for being here
8: Thank you, Mike. I, I hope that I, you know, added, shed more light on the situation, and I appreciate uh, the time.
3: You certainly did. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you.
8: Bye.
3: Michelle Riviere is a resident along with four other families on Blair Road in Cambridge, where they've been living for many years and could be. I mean, they're feeling a little housing insecure right now because of this proposal that, initially anyway, Cambridge Council is balking at. Whether or not the developer is successful at the Ontario Land Tribunal and moves forward anyway remains to be seen. But I've always found this to be difficult and we're hearing about it in downtown Kitchener with a proposal there as well. You've got this townhouse proposal that would create 32 new units, but in so doing, you displace five families living there now. (laughs) What's the greater good here, keeping these families housed affordably or creating 32 brand new units? And I I can't help but wonder if we could put something in place whereby the existing tenants get to remain in the new building at their current rent so that it remains affordable for them. You want to build here, fine, build your 32 units, but you're keeping these five families as well. Does that seem even conceivable to you? Would love to hear your thoughts. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV.
8: The property is not vacant. There are already buildings and families living here. And for this proposal to go through, five families would have to be evicted with no place to go because we know there's a severe housing shortage right now. And yeah, we we would have nowhere to go.
3: Once again, the guy on the other side of the glass, Devin Robertson, nails it with that little snippet from our conversation with Michelle LaRiviere who's living on Blair Road in Cambridge and living affordably. But should a new stacked townhouse proposal be approved and built, council is currently pushing back against it, which is fine, but there are appeal mechanisms. But should that new project move forward, then Michelle and other families living there will be displaced. And I just, I mean, do you look at the 32 new units and say the net good of additional units is the biggest benefit here? Or do you find some way to accommodate those who have been living in this area for many years already and living affordably? Could they be allowed to live affordably in the new project? That's what I'm curious about. I don't know if it's feasible at all, but would love to hear your thoughts on that. We'll go to the phones. Kathy, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you?
9: Good. You know, I was just about to say what you said about letting them stay there. The only question I have is... Now, when they're on a fixed income, is their rent uh, increases monitored by a percentage every year regardless? Like, our, I'm not a renter for years, so I can't remember. I just remember when I did rent, there would be a percentage that each year the landlords were allowed to increase your rent. That still exists. Possibly. Absolutely. Okay. So maybe they do a rent increase to the percentage for the first full year after, so maybe not right now but after and let them stay. And I would think that I mean there are probably preferred units and lesser preferred units. If if it's feasible to give them one of the units that is maybe less preferred just because they can rent the other ones for more, then maybe it's a win win because they're only down a net rental unit of those five spaces. So you're still ahead twenty some odd
3: units. That's my thinking. It's kind
9: of a- yeah, it's kind of a win-win. Um, You know, it's hard. It's I can't say it's not hard. Like, I, I think of my mom was a senior, and once you're on a fixed income, you're on a fixed income. It is what it is. So, I mean, in the good of, of all that's humanitarian and, you know, good whatever, maybe they let them stay. Because let's face it, we have a lot of apartments, apartments in these areas now, and there's got to be empty units everywhere. It's just they don't want to rent them under the preferred rental income amount
5: yeah and maybe
9: we have to start looking at that you know maybe the developers have to give back maybe you know two percent of everything you develop has to be affordable housing i don't know the answer but we got to do something
3: thanks kathy i appreciate the call i don't know the answer either i know this is happening on benton street in kitchener as well it's happened on ottawa street near fisher holman in kitchener and it just makes me ask the question well what if could we find a way to accommodate these displaced tenants in the new building at their existing rental rates? Because if you're at 1500 now and it goes up by $1,000, that's a 67% increase. And, but I don't know that from the developer's perspective then, what it looks like. Alex, good morning.
10: Yes, good morning. Uh, the problem is the devil's in the details. So, yeah, that's fine. In fact, uh, the developer might even uh,
11: accommodate that. Who knows? But here's the problem. What do you, where are they going to live for the two years it takes to build it?
3: That's a tough one too. You're absolutely no, right.
11: That, that's that's it. they have to live somewhere for a couple of years.
3: But if if we're in a situation, Alex, where you're building Stacktown has like maybe as one piece is finished, you can leave the existing building. I don't know, but you're no, right. They're, absolutely they're,
10: not. Why not? No, no, no. Well, if well, you if you
3: off, look at the property and I think you'll see it.
10: Property. What's that? It was a very small property. They're cramming it in. So, no, they're going to level everything off. They have to do a ton of work. There's infrastructure work. There's foundation work. No, absolutely impossible. Okay. So, so they're going to have to move. It's unfortunate, but they're going to have to move. Now, and again, the the underlying case to all of this stuff is the over a million new people coming into this country every year without housing and without hospitals and without infrastructure. That's That's why this is... A main reason why this is happening.
3: Well, I get you. And I'm sorry, Alex, I got I got to run to get to a break and and to the news update. But I hear you. And, And yes, there was a great editorial. I'll encourage you to read it in the Globe and Mail today. We need immigration. Canada is a country built on immigration. We just need to tighten up some of the rules because I don't think we were monitoring as carefully as we could have been. But we do need more housing. That is You're absolutely right, and there's a devil in those details, too. Quick break, back with more. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. We have an update on the way from the City News Center, and then what does it mean to be food insecure? That conversation will follow. Quickly, back to the phones. Mary, I got about 30 seconds, but I wanted to hear from you on this. Oh, thank you. Well, good morning to you.
8: Good morning. I had heard uh, over the weekend... um, Things about this development there, and the the um, the owner now wants to put up what? How many? Uh, uh,
3: Thirty-two units in stacked townhouses. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
8: Well, the way they it came across is that he wanted to make them entry level uh, prices, which is six hundred and six six hundred and sixty thousand dollars, whatever. Now, is that an entry point? I can't. There's lots of people. They can't afford
3: that. Oh, there's no question about it, Mary. And that is, in a nutshell, part of what we're dealing with here in the housing affordability crisis. we got to get you to the new centre for an update, and then let's talk about food insecurity. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. We put the CEO of the Food Bank of Waterloo Region in our front, I don't know what I should even call that, collection area, junk collection, (laughs) the repository of these big bins, and there's poor Kim Wilhelm just sitting patiently, waiting for me to find her in this labyrinth of an office space. It's so nice to see you.
1: You as well. (laughs) Thanks for coming by today. Absolutely. Always my pleasure.
3: We do enjoy these monthly opportunities we get on the first Monday of every month to talk about What is going on when it comes to food and food supports here in our community? And obviously, you and the team at the Food Bank play a key part in all of that. And and one of the things we're hearing uh, to this end, Kim, is about food insecurity. It's a term that gets talked about an awful lot when we think about people who are experiencing hunger. So when we talk about that, and it's funny, housing insecurity just came up in our last segment. When we talk about food insecurity, what are we talking about?
1: That is such a good question because I realized after all of this time chatting every month that not everyone actually understands what food insecurity is. And to put it simply, food insecure means that someone lacks regular access to have enough money to be able to afford food. At its simplest form, that's what it means. And so let me give you an example of that. Um, Individuals who are experiencing food insecurity might worry about whether they're able to afford food for themselves or maybe their family. Um, It could be someone who isn't able to afford food for every meal of the day. Maybe they only have enough money for one meal a day or one meal every couple of days or less than that.
3: Is food insecurity then, Kim, different for everybody?
1: It absolutely is. What we tend to do is we sort of categorize people by being mildly food secure, moderately or severe. Um, And you can fall into any one of those categories. Someone who may be mildly food secure is uncertain whether they're going to be able to pay for all of their groceries when they go to leave the grocery store. Someone who may be moderately food insecure means that they don't necessarily have enough money for a healthy diet and maybe they're making choices like skipping meals or um, not necessarily affording some of the most expensive foods when they go grocery shopping. Um, And somebody who's severely food insecure, they're typically running out of food on a regular basis and on a regular basis they are skipping meals.
3: So that would depend then too on how often they would be accessing services at the food bank, right? Mm -hmm. They're either helping to kind of fill some gaps or maybe they're looking for full-on food supports for a family.
1: Absolutely. And what we try and do is Throughout our food assistance network, we try and provide this supports both within their neighbourhood, but then also in those emergencies where I really try to get through this week, it's not going to happen, I need an emergency food hamper now, or I'm going to go visit a community meal program and have dinner tonight. Those are some of the things that we're doing within our network.
3: So what are the impacts of this food insecurity, Kim?
1: We have seen tremendous impacts over the last year, well, actually two years. Um, And we know that when food insecurity is affecting a person's life, it's having an impact on their healthy lifestyle, their mental state, um, and it can really affect their physical well-being overall. Um, When we look at proof research, they're a team at the University of Toronto. People who are living in food insecure households Are much more likely to suffer from chronic physical and mental health problems than someone that is living in a food secure household.
3: So, what does food insecurity look like for us here in the region of Waterloo?
1: One in 10 households are food insecure. And just two years ago, that number was one in 20. Um, And I often tell people count the houses on your street, the doors in your apartment or condo building. One in 10 are suffering with food insecurity.
3: That's a pretty stark number. And I think that tells us, and and we've seen that number sort of increase Mm -hmm. over the years too, haven't we?
1: Absolutely. We know that the cost of living has never been higher than what we're seeing now. That's from the cost of food, interest rates. Every single one of us has been impacted in some way by the cost of living.
3: All right. One of the things I love about the opportunities we get like this on a regular basis to have these conversations is that we can look at solutions as well. We can talk about the tangible ways not just the food bank can support our community, but how we can in turn support the food bank. So I want to get into talking about how we might be able to change these numbers, this impact in our community when it comes to food insecurity. So stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more. The CEO of our Food Bank of Waterloo Region, Kim Wilhelm, joins us in studio as she does on the first Monday of every month at 1030. Today, we're talking about food insecurity. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Count the doors in your neighborhood, in your apartment building. One in ten of folks living in the region of Waterloo are food insecure. One of these statistics that really stands out to me as we continue our conversation this morning with Kim Wilhelm, who's the CEO of the Food Bank of Waterloo Region, and we're talking about food insecurity from moderate to severe, Kim, that one in ten that you mentioned. So let's get into the tangible changes how the food bank does its work and how we can support the work of the food bank what can we do to change this level of food insecurity
1: the reality Mike is it's not one single thing we're talking about a combination of government policies that improve the incomes of low-income households community programs and supports aiming to improve access to affordable nutritious food for individuals And then we also need to consider the cost of living and how that will impact if we start to see a reduced um, cost of living. Um, I talked earlier about a proof research team, which is a team of the University of Toronto. And what they tell us is that when food insecure households receive more income, they spend it on ways that improve their food insecurity. So when we look at all of the government policies and programs, we know that ultimately it's affordability issue and we need to increase an individual's income.
3: I suspect that with all of the effort that you put in and we saw you municipally leading up to budget time, but advocacy to this end is is another one of the important parts of your job and in, in your role with the Food Bank.
1: It absolutely is. We work very closely with our partners at Feed Ontario and Food Banks Canada to address government policy. Uh, the reality is we need to continue to work to feed individuals while advocating to our partners to make change because we can't sustain this long term. We know that we want to contribute to an individual's mental health, their physical health, and Um, Our partners actually at Feed Ontario a number of years ago published a report on the cost of poverty. Um, And what that report tells us is that the cost of poverty is actually more than when we look at things like increased health care and everything than what it would be to address some policies and put income into policies, people will become less food insecure.
3: All right, we have talked about the Community Food Assistance Network on the show. Can you explain more about that and how the Food Bank supports a network of more than 120 agencies and community programs around the region?
1: So what I love about this network is it's community helping community. As you said, we have 120 programs that work together, and these programs are helping an individual um, with food, because we know food brings people together, but they're also addressing things like housing, mental health. Um, They may help somebody put together a budget or a tax return. Um, All of these things, which we refer to as wraparound supports, that are ultimately helping an individual who is food insecure. Because I mentioned it's not a single thing that's making somebody food insecure. And so by having this network, of supports. We are helping to get that individual out of food insecurity. Now, where does the Food Bank tie into that? We work at acquiring food that we then give to these programs who are ultimately serving individuals. So many people don't realize that the Food Bank of Waterloo Region doesn't hand out food directly at our location. We are distributing this food to a network, a network of agencies who are doing that direct service.
3: How can then we help the food bank provide this nutritious food to this network?
1: If you are out at the grocery store and you have room in your budget, please consider picking up one of our most needed items. If you don't have that list handy, don't worry about, but think about things that are high in protein, low in sodium, those are great options. Also non-perishable food, That has a pull tab. Not everyone who is um, food insecure has access to a can opener. Um, And those are things that people don't always think about. So those pull tab cans are really priority items. Um, If you have extra room in your budget, you can make a tax donation on our website at thefoodbank.ca. You'll get an immediate tax receipt. And those donations help help us at the food bank, fill gaps in our inventory. So we can make sure that our network of programs has the food that they need to deliver their program. And then if you have time in your day, um, working within this network takes so many hours. And so whether you have time that you can work at the Food Bank of Waterloo Region, or one of our partners, We all rely so heavily on volunteers to support this work. And there's information available at thefoodbank.ca. But please consider reaching out to any number of agencies in our community um, and see how they could use some support as well.
3: I've mentioned a couple of times uh, today that I'm grateful that we get to have these conversations on a regular basis, Kim, because the need is what it is. And, And to that end, I always like to check in on the, the organization supporting this need in the community. How's everybody doing at the Food Bank? How are the volunteers? How's the team? Because the the work, I mean, must sometimes feel a little bit overwhelming.
1: It does. I actually said to someone on the weekend, I feel like we haven't had a break in five years. Um, the pandemic hit and we were an essential service and we continued to work every day, long hours to make sure that people were fed. And we were doing that with a reduced staff and volunteer base. Um, The pandemic finished and all of a sudden we started seeing an, an increase in those who were accessing food assistance. And that increase, it started May, June 2022 and it has increased every single month since then. And so the complications of the Um, Logistics and distribution around distributing food are complex, um, and so it's constant change for all of the staff and volunteers that support us.
3: Thanks for all the work you do, and as always, for making time for the show.
1: Absolutely. Have a great day, Mike.
3: Kim Wilhelm is the CEO of the Food Bank of Waterloo Region, joins us on the first Monday of every month at 10.30 to talk about food in our community. Today, we focus on food Insecurity. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. It is ten fifty seven, three minutes away from your update in the City News Center, and then we'll have a conversation about a new grassroots campaign that aims to increase funding for the arts in the region of Waterloo. Many have expressed concern about a defunding of the arts in our community. So that coming up just after the 11 a.m. news. Uh, I want to share with you an email I received from Alec. And Alec, thank you very much for helping identify yet another driver of the day. When I first started doing these, uh, Doug called in and said, I don't think you're going to have any shortage of material. And I think Doug was right. Alex email to Mike at 570news.com, reads as follows. I'm a school bus driver, and I had an event today that absolutely shook me to my core. I was doing my afternoon drop-off, 2.54 p.m. when I approached the intersection of King and Union in Preston, heading in the direction of cambridge memorial hospital i had already activated my overhead lights the doors were open and the students were already at the first step down when i spotted a vehicle entering the parking area on the right of king street and going past my doors then veering to the left and proceeding to make a left hand turn On Union, I had to quickly shut the doors and holler at my students to stop. If I had not shut those doors, I do believe this vehicle would have hit the kids. I came within seconds of a complete disaster on my hands, God forbid, if I hadn't noticed and the students had stepped off. I really still shudder to think about it. I think the other part that bothers me is I've been doing this route for six years and I've never had an issue before. And now in this school year... It has happened twice. I had a motorcyclist do the same thing at that location in the last week of November. And in that event, I did notice the motorcycle sooner, even though that should not have happened either. People, please take more care. What on earth is the hurry? Yours truly, Alec. Alec, thank you very much for doing what you do in driving that school bus and getting our kids to and from school safely, especially in this case. We've talked about it before with school buses and school bus stop arms, and I've heard some of the criticisms, right? Alec mentions he had his overhead lights on already. I've heard people complain. The overhead lights come on well before the bus comes to a stop. We never know what's what. We've got to figure this out. Here's what we've got to figure out. To Alec's point in the email, what on earth is the hurry? This is the thing we have to keep in mind if you are the driver of that vehicle that is passing the school bus it is on you good sir or madam to ask yourself the question of whether or not your hurry is worth the lives of the people that you are putting at risk on the road there is no excuse if you are running late that is a you problem not a school bus driver's or a school bus's problem or certainly not the students on board That school bus. So, Alec, thank you for the email and helping us identify yet another dumbass driver of the day. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. In an effort to keep life as affordable as possible here in the region, regional councillors, when deliberating the 2024 budget, adopted a motion that looked for a 10% decrease in discretionary funding across the board. That impacted our arts and culture sector and some arts institutions disproportionately we have been told. And so it has become a really challenging time for a sector that I personally believe is underappreciated in the community. I, I suspect our next guest will feel similarly. Rochelle Lavelle is uh, Lovell, pardon me. Rochelle Lovell is the chair of the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund and joins us for a conversation. Rochelle, good morning.
12: Good morning. Thank you. And you had it right the first time.
3: <laughs> oh, perfect. I, I'm glad I got it sorted out. Um, are we underappreciated in the arts?
12: Absolutely. We are notorious in this region for being overlooked and underappreciated as an arts and culture sector across the country, actually.
3: So you have launched a, a campaign to draw attention to this defunding of the arts, as you've called it, in the community. Yes. What, what does it look like on the ground? What has been defunded?
12: Well, all of our arts and culture organizations have been defunded by 10%, which was originally proposed for 20 There was no consultation with any of these groups about um, how this cut would impact our sector, including by Councillor Kerry Williams, who sits or sat on the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund. Um, So there's a lot of frustration from the organizations, from the artists. I think the messaging has been really clear um, that we are struggling. We are essentially on life support after the pandemic and we have been calling on the region to help support us um, or at least be proud of the work that we are doing in the face of, of systemic change in our sector and being deemed non-essential throughout the pandemic. So it's um it's a difficult time and we wanted to spread awareness to everybody who does understand that our powers innovation, and innovation is one of the big parts of our economic drivers here in this region. And uh, it's really a grassroots campaign to make people aware, to organize as a sector. There are a lot of us here who are doing incredible work, and I think it's time that we come together to make our voices heard.
3: Why is it important, Rochelle, for a community to support its arts sector? And by that, I mean, support it with public dollars, too.
12: Yeah, I mean, I see this as a broader attack on social services in general. We continue to have a push towards privatization, and art and culture are one of these things that are supported by by the public sector because it contributes to the landscape of our region it's an economic driver um, boring regions don't attain or attract or retain great talent um, we are one of the millennial capitals of the country and we are not providing folks with enough to do to see hope for our future during such difficult times to want to stay here if we have moved into this region and I really hear it every day that it's boring here. And I don't understand why we are moving away from fixing that problem.
3: So how how do we fix a problem like that?
12: I mean, it's pretty simple. We need to fund the artists. We need to make sure that... Our arts organizations are well supported um, and, and that's really difficult to do without dollars and that's also difficult to do without strategic planning. So when we have motions that are passed you know, quietly at the end of the year in the final um, budget deliberations after the director of cultural services has stepped down and the department doesn't have any oversight, That is really difficult for us to cope with as a sector when we are already struggling um, to manage cuts from the province, from the feds. Um, We need the region, particularly when it comes to the emerging artists who are looking for a future here, looking to plant roots here. We are not watering those seeds at this time, and that is alarming moving forward.
3: Is our arts community, Rochelle, in solidarity over this? Sometimes I wonder how difficult it is to bring everybody, you know, from galleries to theatres, et cetera, onto the same page, into the same boat.
12: Yeah, I think it's difficult across any sector to really bring folks together. But I do see the sector as united in terms of we need more support. We need um, the dollars that have at least been promised to us. We have the data from, you know, Canadian Heritage telling us that we are systemically underfunded here and that that is going to set us back decades in our progress. And it could be a really quick and simple solution, which is to just let the folks who are doing wonderful work, strategizing new ways forward here, have the resources that we need in order to do that.
3: Do you feel as though you and your colleagues in the arts and culture sector were... Consulted appropriately during budget deliberations this year?
12: Absolutely not. And I do see that there were a number of folks who went for a delegation. They were. Mag- For the majority unheard um i did see you know they listened that some other organizations should be placed into that key cultural institutions portfolio but what they've done is defund it to a point where it's not helpful really to any of those organizations of course every dollar counts but um, they've created additional systemic problems by taking all of the symphony's money away and then forcing for organizations to share what used to be one pool of money. Um, I also have concerns about the Upstream Fund and the incredible work that they're doing and, um, you know, the different entrepreneurial initiatives as well as the equity work that the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund was, you know, days away from implementing before we needed to shift and strategize about how to cope with
3: this budget cut. I I said at the outset, Rochelle, that I I believe that our arts and culture sector is underappreciated. I I might argue it's that way in any community, but I've lived here for pretty much my entire life. And I really do feel that way because I get such value. Our family does from every experience that we take in. How can folks support your grassroots campaign to draw more attention to this and, and get our regional government to, you know, pay more attention to the importance of funding arts and culture.
12: Absolutely. So add your name to our mailing list. You can find us on Instagram at Save the Arts underscore W-R for Waterloo Region. You can email us at savethearts.waterloo at gmail.com. You can type you know Save the Arts Waterloo Region into Google and it will pop up. Um, Get onto our mailing list so we can keep you informed. You can also speak directly with your regional counsellors about how art and culture benefits you and your family, how you see it as an economic driver and how you really want to see the region um, reverse some of these cuts or consider other support that could be put into place. I think they really need pressure right now. We can also write to our MPs, our MPPs. Um, We can share the story on our social networks. We can talk with our friends about our concerns. And I think it really starts with conversation. Let's dig into the data and see how we really do benefit our region here. It's not a hobby for everybody. This is a means of economic um, driving, and it's also something that brings our community together. It, it, it lets us connect with culture. It, it bonds people. It makes us feel better. And I, I'm worried about a future that doesn't include that.
3: It's a pretty bleak one from where I'm sitting, for sure. Uh, yeah. Rochelle, thank you very much for making time for the show today. I appreciate it.
12: I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on.
3: Rochelle Lavelle is the chair of the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund. Savethearts.waterloo at gmail.com. Arts underscore WR on Instagram. And look, I, I, I get it. And if you've listened to this show for more than a minute, you know that I've never met two nickels I didn't want to rub together. I am as uh, parsimonious, it's my fancy word for cheap, as they come. But I believe passionately in the importance of arts and culture, not only as an economic driver, I was talking to Paul Fixter, who, of course, broadcasts Kitchener Rangers games with me here on the radio station, and he had come downtown for uh, an event at the museum in downtown Kitchener and decided to come down earlier so that he could enjoy a dinner at one of our local restaurants. That's just the smallest part of the spinoff that comes from these institutions being able to stage events for us. But to that last point uh, that Rochelle made and, and I echoed, it's, it's a pretty bleak future. It's a pretty boring place without a thriving arts and culture scene. It, it just is. And, and while we deal with affordability crises and housing crises across this country... We have to think about the places that we are bringing people. It can't just be all about the buildings where they live and the offices where they work, if they go to offices anymore, right, with the, the new world since the pandemic. But that's an aside. We need things to do outside of our homes and our workplaces. And the arts and culture sector provides those things for us to do. It is a very bleak landscape without. You might be inclined to check out any of those, save the arts underscore WR or drop an email, get on the mailing list, save the at gmail.com. I think it's critically important that we get this right moving forward. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. It is eleven nineteen on your Monday morning. I couldn't help but notice that Denise Andriacci in that last weather update said the sun is still with us today. Just looking up, just looking out my window over here. Maybe my window is different. I don't know. Maybe it's coming later. Either way, I am not going to complain a whole lot because we had a beautiful weekend of sun sunshine. But I wouldn't mind a little more today. I'll take it. It's okay by me. The more sunshine, the better. Uh, coming up in about 10 minutes time just after the 11:30 news David Drew will join us for Drew's views and among other things today David and I will be talking about a really interesting move out west i i believe this is what he's getting at when the ndp is too corporate for you but we'll talk more about that and also how a long standing television talk show host has really upset some young journalists that'll be between eleven thirty and noon with david drew on drew's views here on the program today uh, devin robertson is of course our guy on the other side of the glass as he is every day keeping things on track devin if i were to ask you one of the most common words in the english language what word would come to mind for you the you're so smart Like, you are so smart. It turns out that around 25% of the words that we use every day are the 10 most common words in the English language. And when I first saw this, oh, 25% of the words you use every day, blah, 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 I started thinking of, like, word words. Like, how is the? I mean, I guess it is. But listen to the rest of this top 10 list. So you nailed it, number one, right? The most common word in the English language, the. Followed by B, not with two E's, but one. Yeah. To be or not to be. Two, to be or not to be. Of, this talk show is made up of a lot of words. And, this talk show is made up of a lot of words and a lot of humor. Because if you're not laughing yet, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. This is where I really start breaking down. A uh, or A. Like, have a good day. Uh. Yeah. How. I know I am getting a little bit persnickety here, but how is ah one letter? It's even like that's a that becomes a word. Is it really? I mean, I is a word. I is all that's the that's number ten on our list here, and then we have in as opposed to out, that as opposed to this, and have as in I have a headache because it's too damn hot in here. Those (laughs) those are the most common words in the English language: the, be, to, of, and. A, in, that, have, I. In that have I, I could make a song about that, I think. If I were as good at lyrics as Taylor Swift, in that have I might become my new top 40 hit. (laughs) But 25, so you only have the rest of the words you speak every day are outside of those main 10. Here's why this caught my attention. And again, kudos to you for nailing the the as the most common.
9: Thank you.
3: My friends and I used to have, we used to play this little game. So, and and my friends really liked playing it with me because I had to go on the air for four hours every day. And it would basically be the challenge of using a particular word in a sentence without, you know, so if you were just a casual listener, you wouldn't know that I was told to say persnickety at some point today or parsimonious, right? Two words that I've used in the last 15 minutes and probably shouldn't. I mean, why <laughs> why use a $25 word when a $0.25 cent word will do? But nonetheless, that's what we would do, and we would pick words that were far less common than these ten, right? But when I heard the most common words in English, I don't know. I was thinking about words a little longer than three or four letters. It'd, it'd be more interesting to know the most common words outside of the most common words. Right. What's number 11?
5: Right. It's we, like... <laughs> It's not interesting that people say is a lot. That's not why I'm clicking on
3: an article. Bingo. I want to know outside of those little don't know, default words. What are the unique words? I'm with you on that. Is it hand? Is it face? Is it door? Is yeah. it headache? Is it jeans? Jeans. Something. It's not jeans at all, but I mean, I'd I, be more interested to know where jeans ranks than that the is number one. You know what I mean? Smartest guy I know. The guy on the other side (laughs) of the glass, Devin Robertson. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. You may remember last week we talked about Manulife as an insurer working out an exclusive arrangement with Loblaws-owned pharmacies to cover specialty drugs only at those pharmacies. Wow, what's that sound I hear? Oh, it's the sound of a backpedal. And Manulife now today says it will cover these specialty drugs at any pharmacy. You can fill your prescriptions if Manulife is your insurer at any pharmacy after the backlash that was sparked by the company saying... It had an exclusive arrangement with those Bla owned pharmacies, you know, places like Shoppers, et cetera. Uh, I, I think this makes sense pretty much across the board when it comes to maintaining the accessibility of those necessary prescriptions. And, you know, it shows that if the public backlash is loud enough and strong enough, courses can be reversed. It's almost like what we've seen from our provincial government these last couple of years. All right, we're going to get you an update from our City News Center, and then David Drew joins me in studio for Drew's Views. It's coming up on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570, and Rogers TV.
7: Has anybody heard from Crazy Dave? Has anybody heard from Crazy Dave? Has anybody heard
10: from Crazy Dave? I haven't seen hiding or shaggy head of that boy in four years. But you'd know him if you met him. Played harmonica like the cat lost his balls. Yep, Crazy Dave. Had a toothy smile as big as my hand, always chewed on a toothpick or a long blade of grass, drank from the bottle, rolled the worst cigarettes, was impervious to insect bites. It's one of the best damn tree-planting highballers east of Prince George.
3: Just like that, we welcome David Drew, owner of Negotiating Change, Government Relations, Stakeholder Engagement Strategies, to the studio for Drew's Views. We do this every Monday morning, 11.30. Good morning, sir. I have something else to talk about. Really? Scott Wicken? FIFA. Okay. FIFA hit Toronto,
10: or is going to hit Toronto. It, it, no, $300 million is going to hit Toronto. Well, this is what I was just leading towards, though. <laughs> like, you know, we, we're going to have a whole bunch of people saying this is a waste of money, and I tend to agree. But the amazing thing is, how much money is Toronto going to get from all of this? The city itself, the government, zero. Absolutely. Like, all of that economic activity that comes in. Sales taxes go to the provincial and federal government. The income that is generated goes to the federal government. Like the city gets next to no revenue and all of the costs from events like this. And I just, I want the listeners and the viewers to remember that like you go to the trouble and you have this big event that brings so much money to the city and the city eats all of the costs for picking up the extra litter and dealing with all of that. And they get none of the revenue.
3: If I remember the numbers correctly off the top of my head, the city's ponying up $90 million, the province 97 of the roughly $300 million tab. So, carry the one $113 million remains, quote-unquote, unaccounted for. We'll see. I, I like nice things. Like I, I think that we should have events like this in our community, but the price tags get to me a little bit. Don't even get me started on the whole Olympics boondoggle. Well, it almost feels like, hey, Mike, do you want to buy me a car?
10: Like, you're going to take all of the costs and I'm going to take all of the benefit, but it's the investment and in risk is on you. Right. And it just that is another example of why cities need some revenue tools that grow with the economy. So we are actually incented to do nice
3: things. I saw a notice from the city of Waterloo that three cents of every tax dollar is what they end up with. So that's an argument. And we know how property taxes are so burdensome. Anyway, Mm -hmm. leaving that aside, excellent point, though, to start on and bring people up to speed on it. Uh, Let's talk about the federal New Democrats and how corporate it has become, I suppose. I thought you were referring to a labor leader out west who has announced that he's going to seek the conservative candidacy in his riding of Port Coquitlam. I associate labor leaders with the NDP. That's what I thought you meant, but you mean something else entirely. I do,
10: although I've got to say one of the weirdest uh, experiences on the Hill was meeting the pipeline workers who were unionized, their union reps, because you know they were pro-oil, and it was just the weirdest thing in the world to be in Ottawa and meet with union people who were pro-conservative. Absolutely. But, no, I was referring to the fact that Justine, uh, Jagmeet Singh was heckled rather abusively at an event because he is not sufficiently pro-Palestine, pro-Gaza, pro-Hamas, depending on which of the words you were hearing screamed out. And all I can wonder is, you know, you might not be happy with the conservatives because they have really laid their line down in the sand that they stand with Israel. You might be unhappy with liberals because you don't understand where they stand on a given day. And you might be unhappy with the NDP because they're not doing quite enough, but you know they're the only ones who are really, I feel, trying to emphasize what is going on to the victims in Gaza, and they are in the political climate they are in. And you're going to go out and protest jug meat, saying, "Well, who do you expect to carry the water for you?" I remember back when the Conservatives won their first minority. And there was the local dude from, I think it was the Institute for Quantum Computing or Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics who got, you know, Paul Martin hosted the announcement and then he posted this huge blog post saying he felt dirty taking the money because of all these other problems with it. And I sort of just assumed, well, the conservatives are going to love this guy. And I was talking to one of the honorary campaign chairs. He's like, they gave him everything he wanted, but they didn't give his friends enough of what they wanted. Does that seem like a reliable partner to you? And that's just where I'm coming back to with this, is the NDP are the ones pushing the hardest for Gaza aid, the ones working hardest to criticize Israel. And I might not agree with them on all of it, but my point is if you want Canada to take stronger action to contain Israel's um, overreach, let's say, and you want aid to get to the Gazans, the NDP is the only person who's driving a bus anywhere near there right now. And if you're going to go out and heckle them, well, who do you expect to come alongside you?
3: Doesn't it speak, though, really, just to, with the advent and continued surge of social media, everybody has an outsized voice. This is, to me the sounds of a group even further left than the NDP. And I'll just leave that there for public consumption.
10: Well, and I don't even want to say left because, you know, that would imply that it's sort of right wing to like what Israel is doing. It's not really left or right wing. It's really about who do you think started it? You know, do you want to go back 10 years? Do you want to go back 50 years? Do you want to go back 2,000 years? Keep going, keep going because that's how long this dispute has been going on. It's not really left or right wing, but the NDP are there for you. And no one else seems to be, so why are you targeting them and it 's not just about the outsized voice it 's about the inability to voice without anger anymore right yeah
3: that 's you know what really good way to put it, okay, speaking of somebody who is on your side, at least I thought he was. I had a fanboy moment with Steve Pakin that I will share, and then you can explain, David, why he seems to be upsetting young journalists. We'll get to that as we continue with Drew's Views here every Monday morning at eleven thirty on the Mike Farwell Show, City News five seventy and Rogers TV. David Drew joins us in studio for Drew's views every Monday morning at eleven thirty. A long time ago, about twenty years now, I was on my first tour of duty, if you will, through the city of Toronto as a reporter, and I ended up at a news conference one day. And Steve Pakin was also in attendance. He had his son with him because it was a school PD day, and I guess he didn't have necessary childcare. So Steve Pakin, his son, and I at the same news conference, and then I was scrumming with Steve Pakin afterwards, which for me was a lovely moment in my career in broadcasting. How is it now, David, that he's gone on to upset young journalists, which I was at the time. I'm far less young today.
10: He was interviewed on The Hub, which is a podcast, uh, slightly right-wing, very intellectual. And they've been doing a series on the future of journalism in Canada and more globally as well. And he was the guest through the entire last episode. And he had, I don't want to say criticism, because, you know, it's Steve Paikin. He never expresses anything as criticism. It's always these questions about, well, I wonder about the effect of, which is really saying... I think you're an idiot. <laughs> but he talked about the journalists coming out of journalism school nowadays and how they are being taught to put their own beliefs in the story to a degree that he would have been failed out for doing when he went to journalism school. And it's kind of funny because a lot of the rest of the episode was about our journalists out of touch with their audiences. And the reaction to all the rest of the episode didn't seem to gather much of anything at all. Nobody was really concerned about the future of journalism in Canada and everything he had to say about that. But boy, oh boy, these young journalists, it's not that they were saying they're not being taught this stuff. They were saying it's good. And then there was a whole lot of reaction saying basically that Steve Bacon doesn't know what he's talking about. And But nobody reacted to the rest of it. And... I just found it kind of funny because you have this entire episode about the future of media in Canada. Are journalists out of touch with their audiences? And this one comment about training school for journalism has the entire young journalism world going
3: after them. And I'm just sort of like, well, are they out of touch with their audiences? Well, they are if they're inserting themselves into stories. I can promise you that. They're not activists. They're journalists. Yes, but I would also,
10: you know, not to disagree with what Steve Paikin is saying, but... You know the budgets for journalism nowadays are not what they used to be, and you know, oh my God, Aaron Wary from the CBC, he's one of the ones that really, really annoys me on this because sometimes he's there under news. Sometimes he's there under opinion, and when he can't quite decide whether it's news or opinion, they call it analysis. And news analysis, to me, is what every journalist wants to do now. It's like, You're right. I am mixing my opinion with the hard facts, and that, I think, is what Steve Pakin is talking about, but I also just, I'm not sure how much of this is the schools teaching the kids that this is the best practice for journalism, or this is the schools teaching the kids, you want to keep your job, you've got to punch it up somehow, and this is how you punch it up, because, you know, it's all
3: about clickbait now. It's very interesting. And I would argue that stories can be generated virtually anywhere, probably even virtually, if you get what I mean, Mm -hmm. AI. So one perhaps ought to seek out their own voice because that's the one thing that you have that's different than somebody else.
10: Don Newman was the first real powerful political person on CBC that I can remember in my lifetime, you know, other than the anchor. But when the first time they had their 5 o'clock flagship politics show on CBC News World. He was the host. He never voted. He purposefully did not vote because he did not want to go through the process of having to make that decision while he was going through the process of evaluating the candidates from a journalist perspective. He didn't even want to go that far in. And
3: I, I think we're missing a bit of that. I would not disagree with that point. All right. Uh, Jenny Byrne knows the real cause of inflation. Can't wait. Oh, no, Jenny Byrne is the real real cause.
10: Is the real (laughs) cause of inflation. Didn't you know she works for Loblaws? Oh, well, of course. I mean, last week, that was the liberal talking point, going after Jenny Byrne. And I don't get it on a pile of levels. First of all, her company is working for Loblaws, lobbying the provincial government on the rules around booze in grocery stores. She is not working the file. Why do I care? But we had many ministers, including the prime minister himself, going out and just saying, and Jenny Byrne works for Loblaws. I don't understand. Um, If Loblaws is really, really that bad... If only there was somebody in government with the power to do something about it. But I, it's just this whole tearing. You can't go after Pierre Poliev on his positions anymore, so you're going after Jenny Byrne? Now, just put this on the other side, though, because I, I have a lot of crap to throw at everyone on this. Um, Jenny Byrne. I am not working that file. I have nothing to do with it. It's like, well, why is your name on the company then? Like, am I signing up to Jenny Byrne and Associates to deal with the nobodies? I'm assuming that the person I am dealing with is benefiting from your expertise at some level because you are the head of the company. And to sit there and say you have nothing to do with anything, I just think that makes your hourly rate drop. But, you know, I just keep coming back to, I said last week that the Liberals were starting to flail. And this, I think, is more evidence of that. This could be a great angle if it was anything to do with grocery prices, if it was lobbying federally, if her name had been attached to it. But none of that is here. And so you're just sort of hoping Jenny Byrne and Loblaws is going to be enough to get this going. Some people I've heard are speculating that this was a kick from the government to journalists to say, hey, look, this was right there. Why didn't you find it? Okay, I don't understand why the Prime Minister himself has to attach himself to this because, I don't know, it's like when the Liberals started going after, I can't remember her name now, the National Post columnist who's going to be a Tory candidate, Sabrina Maddow? Yes, yes. And it's just, when is the last time you actually had an official party tweet targeting a nomination candidate? Like, did you just elevate her accidentally because, Wow. You know, you didn't go after Pierre Poiliev, Like They haven't put a label on Pierre Polyev as well as they've tried to do to Sabrina Maddo. This is just getting weird. You have to go after the leader or the policies. And the policies aren't being put in the window sufficiently for you to hit them. So you've got to go after the leader. And they can't. Now, the neat thing about Jenny Byrne, though, is do you know what her title is? No. She doesn't have one. Oh. <laughs> Well, no, but that that is just one of those things. You know, it's his advisor. And we're expecting she's going to be running the campaign. But, you know, if you were to look at any org chart of the leader's office for Pierre Poiliev right now, her name would not appear. So, spooky. Ooh.
3: Yeah, well, that, and I think that's why. They get, get, the, uh, get the liberals to swing at ghosts. Speaking of nominees, Connie Cody, the nominee for uh, the Conservative Party in Cambridge. Just Cody learned that this Cody. morning. Why do I know that name? Because she ran last
10: time. Okay. Okay. Why? That's just very interesting then because, you know, when we talked about this, we were thinking, oh, is this going to be some celebrity or, you know, there's no, I guess they think that's winnable. They want her there because she did a good job last time. They want her to get a head start on fundraising and because now that she's a candidate, she can start raising money and it's a lot easier to do.
3: Still surprising though. Happened pretty quick. All right, we'll take a final break. Come back with David's podcast recommendation. It's Drew's Views every Monday morning, 1130, here on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570, and Rogers TV. David Drew joins us every Monday morning, 1130, for Drew's Views. Likes to leave us with a podcast recommendation. We're going to Question Period today, David. CTV Question Period, hosted by Vashi Capellos.
10: I don't even want you to listen to the whole podcast, but there was one amazing interview with Ukrainian foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba. I was practicing saying that during the break. And the reason it was so fascinating is with everything that is going on with Republican support, lavering or tying it to Israel or the border wall, all of that. It's not that she was trying to elicit an answer, but all the questions were along the lines of, so how, are, how worried are you about How worried are you about? And this dude with the Ukrainian accent was just like, we are at war. We do not have time to be worried. And he just kept coming back to that no matter what the angle was. Here was this dude saying, no, if that happens, it's my job to deal with it. But until then, I have other things to do because we're at war. I don't have time to worry. And at first, you're kind of like, oh, that's just a line. But he kept hitting it. And he hit it so well It was just this really good interview, and my gosh, we're still at war. Ukraine's still at war. We've kind of let that one fall off the headlines a little bit, and you've got everything going on in the uh, in the news right now, where the conservatives and the Ukrainians want Canada to send old missiles to Ukraine, and the government says it's too risky. But boy, oh boy, this guy—I don't have time to worry about
3: that. It was just very inspiring. It's a masterclass in staying on message. David Drew, the owner of Negotiating Change, Government Relations, Stakeholder Engagement Strategies, joins us every Monday, 11.30, for Drew's Views on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News. Take out the papers and the trash,
13: or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't scrub that
14: kitchen floor, you ain't gonna rock and roll no more.
11: Don't talk that.
3: Just finish cleaning up your room. And thus we embark on our daily ritual from noon until one, the final hour reserved for you. You get to start the conversation for the next 60 minutes during our 12 o'clock talk back, yakety yak. Do talk back. 519 570 2545, star 570 and 1 800 570 5715. Jersey Bill, you're going to start us off. Good afternoon.
4: Yeah, like I said before, I I was just interested in this whole Taylor Swift thing, you know, absurdity of it all. So, and I realized it was one crazy thing, and that is that. Uh, well, to be truly, when I follow teams now, you know, I don't get emotionally involved, but I have this little rule: if the team comes from a from a state that voted for Biden, then I'll support it for Trump. No, you know, just you know, just gives me. Instead of betting on the team, that's that's how I it up. So, I, and I knew not only was Missouri a state that had voted for, but but that the owners of that team, the the Hunt family, they were they were arch conservatives. Uh, and I looked into it a little bit, and what what I found was shocking. Not only was the founder of the family H. L. Hunt arch conservative, who supported the John Birch Society, and was so. Um, uh, anti, uh, uh, anti, uh, uh, what is the uh, well? He was against civil rights, uh, so he act- supported the the uh, Elijah Muhammad and the Black Muslims because those folks also didn't want any kind of race mixing. Uh, so <laughs> the whole idea that that um, that the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, you know, now you know because of are 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 someone on the side of biden it's it's ridiculous uh the the main thing i found out about hl hunt is is that uh, what trump has done with women he did 10 times worse he had he had three different families going pretty much simultaneously it was a bigamist he certainly wasn't an adulterer he had three uh besides the seven children he had with his first wife he had he had four other Relationships, uh, or two other relationships that that created eight more children. It's, it's just, it's just maddening.
3: So let me get this straight, though, Billy. You you determine your sports affiliation based on your political affiliation?
4: Uh, I just do that just just to just to give myself some little skin in the game, you know. So so say uh, uh, New York is a uh, New York team is playing a Texas team, so I'll support the New York team. Right. You know, just and it's you know and like I say, I don't I don't get myself emotionally involved. And it's really funny because, as I say, this and here's another thing: the Hunt family formed the successfully helped form the AFL. The AFL, of course, became such a strong league that the merger was almost a 50-50 proposition, even though they had fewer teams in the AFL. Uh, and I think that's another reason that, that Trump might have something against him, because he tried to do something with, the, uh, I don't know, if you probably don't remember, he might have been too young, but he, he had something going on called the USFL. Uh, and uh, I think he was the owner of the franchise that, that was in the New York area. Uh, and that didn't work out. Uh, so that's a, that's a... I think that's another because and and i think trump always wanted an nfl team or or, or at least a, a football team said to be professional and it just is just another one of his failed ventures so that might be another reason that he's uh, even though these these folks are probably more on the republican conservative side of things he, he would be, uh
3: not like them very much because they succeeded where he failed all right billy i appreciate the call and the uh Interesting thoughts and analysis. Look, I I think that the reason that Donald Trump is anti-Kansas City Chiefs is for obvious reasons with Taylor Swift's influence, right? So Taylor Swift dates a player on the Kansas City Chiefs. Taylor Swift gets even more exposure as if she needed it. She doesn't. She's doing just fine on her own. Thank you very much. But were she to once again endorse a candidate in the U.S. presidential election, as she did four years ago, could that turn the tide against Donald Trump? I I think Americans are going to have a really interesting choice later this year, but that's a whole other story. So I I would say that's the main reason that we're hearing all of this pushback uh, against the Chiefs and or Taylor Swift, which I think is patently unfair. I also find it interesting though, that Billy, when he doesn't have any other skin in the game, makes a sporting decision, a fandom decision based on his political affiliation. And I guess I kind of get that this is where we're at in discourse today, right? You're either with me or you're against me. If we are ideologically opposed politically, we might as well just be opposed personally. I get that sense more and more. Maybe I'm overthinking it or misreading the room but i don't feel like i am and really shouldn't sports be still one of those safer places when i tune into a sporting event i want to watch athletes perform at their best i don't give a tinker's darn who they vote for that's not going to change my allegiance to a particular team personally but i i get the sense that billy might not be alone in that and and frankly i i think it's a little sad i i Look, it doesn't, I'm not saying Billy's saying that across the board, but just if he doesn't have a rooting interest, he's going to base his rooting interest on his political interest. Can't we just leave the politics out and, and watch the sport for the sport? Can't we just listen to the music for the musician? Can't we just watch the movie for the actors? I don't know, but here we are. Welcome to the way the world operates in early 2024. This is how your 12 o'clock talk back hour operates. You give us a call and start a conversation. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. We used to kind of have a hodgepodge of opportunities through the week for you to call in, get stuff off your chest, onto the air, And we've consolidated it into the same hour every day. Ample opportunity and consistency in the timing between noon and one every day. The 12 o'clock talk back. You give us a call at 519-570-2545. Star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. Right back to the phones we go. Ken, good afternoon.
7: Morning, Mike. Hello, Ken. Uh cell phones in the classroom yes sir i keep hearing people say well I, I you know we might have to get a hold of them in case of an emergency what would constitute an emergency that you had to call your teenager to get him out of class i mean is the house on fire the kid's got to go rescue the cat or is it uh, what do you want for supper pizza or burgers I don't recall in high school anyone ever, ever being pulled out of the class because of an emergency, and, of course, we never had phones. Uh, secondly, uh, I had occasion to be in a couple of primary schools in Cambridge in the last few months, and, uh, you know, they're not allowed to have cell phones. In the, like they, Their cell phones have to be in the lockers when they come into school. So I never saw a cell phone in either of those schools for the few hours I was there each day. So all the high schools would have to do have to do is extend that. I mean, when the kid gets to grade nine, nothing changes. Your phone goes in your locker. Uh, if you get caught with a phone, you have to stop and hand it into the office in the morning. So there's you know there's penalties for, for abusing the system. And besides that, people pay high end high end money for private schools, and a lot of those private schools don't allow phones at all. So I don't understand what the deal is with the cell phones in the classroom. They're not necessary, and they are definitely disruptive, I can tell you.
3: Ken, I appreciate the call. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, The less technology we have to distract us, because that's what it becomes, in the classroom, the better. And based on information sent home by Eastwood Collegiate to start this second term, which began on this past Friday, the 2nd of February, there will be no cell phone use in classrooms or in hallways during classroom time. And it just, it makes perfect sense. I think the best lesson to come from this is that you can live for 45 minutes or 53 minutes, whatever the class time is, without your phone. Like, we need to start training ourselves generally, I think, in that regard. And to the point on what constitutes an emergency, I remember vividly, I was sitting in Mr. Corso's, grade 10 math class at saint jerome's high school when there was a knock on the door and of course mr corso went to answer it called me over and there was my father to report that my grandfather had passed away would i like to leave school for the day would i like to stay in class it was left up to me i stayed but you want to talk about some level of emergency maybe that constituted the emergency and i don't see why it would have to be any different today If that message needs to be relayed to a child in school, clearly it can be done and you don't need the cell phone to do it. I'm all for restricting the use. Back to the phones, Terry. Good afternoon.
14: Hey, good afternoon, Mike. Um, You know, uh, going back to what Jersey Bill was saying, um, yeah, H.L. Hunt was not involved with the Chiefs. It was his son, Lamar, that started the AFL and and started the, the franchise. So it's like saying, because your father is a convicted criminal, it makes you a convict, convicted criminal. <laughs> I mean, look at the guy in Dallas. What a, what, what a national disgrace, but yet he's got the world's most valuable sports franchise. So what does that tell you? Hey, hey Mike, I went to um, a Saturday's game in, in Brantford. The Bulldogs and the, and the battalion were playing.
3: Oh, nice, yeah.
14: That is a great atmosphere.
3: It's it really bad. is, isn't it?
14: It is. It is, and, and that place was packed to, to, to the rafters. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it, the arena's kind of out there. I hope they do get something sorted out down there, because I tell you, I, I think the the appetite for uh, junior a hockey is is there in Brantford now at this you know this time. So let's hope they can sort that out. Uh, I, I know that I've heard uh, your after game calls sometimes when you and Paul fixture host it. Like I know Paul sometimes uses the injuries as an excuse for why the Rangers have kind of gone downhill lately.
3: It might even be more me than him, to be honest with you. But, yes, we've talked about that at some length.
14: I mean, isn't that kind of a cop-out? Like, It means your team has no depth if you're using the injury as an excuse.
3: For sure, Terry. And that's why I, I when I thought about it for a moment, I said, it's probably more me than Paul. And I remember Paul okay. saying, you know, that's when other guys are supposed to step up. I will just add, you know, we were talking about, like, Top six forwards and, you know, top four defensemen being out all at the same time, right? So I would argue, you know, without a Philip Machar, who's a first-round NHL pick, without Trent Swick, who scored 20 goals, without Cameron Reed who's a top four defenseman, without Matt Sopp, who's a 30-goal scorer, like all of those guys out of the lineup, without Matt Andonofsky, your top one of your top two defensemen, your top pairing, and all the minutes he logs, all five of those guys out at the same time. And I didn't even mention Mitch Martin, who's been out since November. So all of that at once. the top lost one game, wasn't it? He just missed one game. Right, but I'm saying, so Tuesday night, when you would have heard the call-in show, like all f- six of those players were out at the same time. That's all. So I, I still would argue it is a factor, but to your point, sure, it I, could I be argued a cop
14: I don't think they're going to catch London now, so they're going to have to settle for third or fourth, depending what Saginaw, and Sault Ste. Marie end up doing. But uh, I mean, like London, I think they they got off to a slow start early season because they had some injuries too. But I never heard the London people say, "Oh, you know, uh, you know, we're not we're struggling, we can't win because they have all these injuries." They kind of just regrouped a little bit, and they have lost some some players. But, did
3: you Did you listen to the London call-in show? Uh,
14: no, I don't. Oh, okay. Don't maybe maybe they, they talked different. about that. But, but you you know I I know Mike Stubbs I listen to some of his show and, and he does mention uh, on occasion but um, no I don't I don't listen to the London talk I listen to your Mike
3: Oh, you uh, Terry I love like, you buddy I love Stubbsy <laughs> I, I, too I, I, I love Stubbsy too but I appreciate okay. your ears over here
14: Okay thanks Mike that's all I have to say <laughs> Thanks, thanks Terry a day.
3: You too Talk to you later I hope always look forward to it and great call about Brantford uh, just down Highway Twenty Four from us here in the region I'm thrilled to see them back in the league I really am. To Terry's point, I think it's the right-sized junior hockey market. They are loving it right now. I I hope, and I will emphasize the hope, that it continues because, of course, junior A hockey came and left Brantford back in the 1980s. And we also saw a similar response to the battalion when they moved back to North Bay. Then after the initial three-year honeymoon was over, the ticket sales started to dwindle a little bit. I hope they keep going in Brantford. I think it's great for the league. I think it's great for the community. This is your 12 o'clock talkback hour on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570. And as the name of the hour implies, when the 12 o'clock talkback continues, we continue taking your calls back to the phones we go. Good afternoon, Kyle.
5: Good afternoon, my friend Mike. Hey, hey. I just want to make a big shout out to the uh, list of cyclones over the weekend. They, uh, they had a, a, a barbecue, I guess, it was the first time they've done it in like five years at, uh, at theirs. And it was so successful that we raised I don't know what the total number is but we raised a lot of money we sold out of we sold out of sausages and hot dogs that's how good it was
3: well when you so, start a barbecue and it's a sunny day you better sell out of sausages and hot dogs let's go it, it's good barbecue oh, it
5: was it was fun every single teammate showed up and they stayed from the minute it we even stayed an extra hour than we were supposed to it was so good so I just want to Give a shout-out to the Listowel Cyclones for uh, holding that. And uh, I think they're number one in the league right now. So congratulations to them as well. So there you go, Mike. That's all i got to say. Thanks, man.
3: Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate the call. Represent the hometown. Way to go, you Cyclones, in the Junior B hockey loop here in our part of the province. I'm glad you've forgotten or just wish to forget about Saturday night in Erie, where the Rangers got beat up pretty bad by the Otters. Uh, I haven't been all that interested in talking about it either, so thanks for not making me. <laughs> the twelve o'clock talk back hour continues following this update from the City News Center. Stay with us. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News Five Seven. You know how to reach us here for the 12 o'clock talkback, right? 519-570-2545, star 570, -570 1-800-570-5715. You give us a call, you start the conversation. Back to the phones we go. Mike, what's on your mind? Good afternoon.
11: Mike, I have a personal pet peeve. It's when grocery stores rearrange all the products in their aisles, and they make you walk around for miles to find it. And meanwhile the, meanwhile, the signage is gone, uh, inaccurate and everything else. The other thing I don't like is the staff tell you you the product is not available, and then you find it where they moved it to. It's maddening, Mike. I can't stand this. That's my gripe for the day.
3: <laughs> All right, Mike. I thank you for the call. I thank you for the reminder. That after work today, I must pick up the coffee that we enjoy so much at home. Shout out to our friends at Barry's Asparagus, where they make the delicious blacksmith and bean coffee right here in our own backyard. And it just so happens that the major grocer, the only reason I go to that store, because remember that time, way back when when I feel as though from this particular chain of grocery stores, I got, well, I did get ripped off. I didn't feel that way. I, I was correct in getting absolutely ripped off on a little bag of uh, black pepper to put in your shaker on the table. But that's, anyway, I said, I'm never going back to your store. But it's the store that carries, unless I'm going all the way out to uh, Barry's Asparagus, it's the store where I can get my blacksmith and bean. Anyway, I'll stop there afterwards. However, I'm, I'm with Mike on the rearrangement because once you get used to your store and where the products are in your store, the grocery shopping becomes a whole heck of a lot easier, right? And I will be honest with you, it has always been one of my least favorite kinds of shopping. That's why I like going to a place like Finest Sausage and Meat, because you get in there, it's a smaller, more personal environment. You get to talk to somebody that really knows their product, knows what they have in stock, and out you go. The whole customer service thing, and it's it's very similar to being in other big box stores. Those people that you ask for help that are able to help you and take the time to do so seem to be fewer and further between. I remember a long time ago, I tried unsuccessfully to earn a job as a server they were it was a chain of restaurants they were opening a new one up in waterloo i applied they sent us to their location in london to be trained and one of the things that sticks out with the, look at this 40 years or so later i'm still remembering this and yet i still couldn't get the job but if somebody in that restaurant asks you where the washroom is instead of just pointing lead them in the direction so that they know exactly where they have to go. It's just that extra little bit. It's the same if you're in a store and you ask for some help. If that person doesn't just say, oh, yeah, it's over in aisle five, but leads you to the place in aisle five where that item is, that is customer service extraordinaire. I think one of the reasons that I came to dislike the whole grocery shopping experience is because forever I had been doing it on Saturday mornings. I don't know why it was... When I decided to do my grocery shopping, I guess because, you know, it's Saturday, get the chores done. That's when I recall mom and dad doing the grocery shopping more often than not. Forget that. I try to find the nice quiet times of the day because everybody, it seems, is trying to do their shopping on Saturday mornings. So this is even back in before the uh, self-checkout days, right? So you're queuing up just to push your cart through and then get the heck out of Dodge. And... The aisles themselves are very full, not just of product, but of people. And you're trying to navigate your way through a very busy store. I can't wait to stop by my local grocery store in about uh, an hour or so, because Monday afternoon around 2, not going to be nearly as busy as it is on Saturday morning around 9.30. So I soured myself on the whole experiment. And to Mike's point about not being able to find what you want and maybe wandering around remember and this came up during all news mornings with christine clark and luke schultz who was filling in the sporting for mark douglas but we are really just being socially engineered not just in the grocery store but quite frankly everywhere there's a reason that the tempting products are at eye level more accessible Attracting us with their with our eyes. All of these different things. There's a reason for that. They want the impulse buys made. You got to work around, I think, right, the, the idea is to work around the outsides of the grocery store because it's in the inner aisles where you get yourself in trouble with the less healthy foods and these things. But you've got stuff at the end of aisles to catch your attention. You've got the stuff at the checkout. And you think I'm going to pass up the crunchy bar when I'm waiting in line at the checkout, and it says it's right there for... What is a chocolate bar? I think the last time I bought one, it was $2.39. Let me tell you about the days I used to get a chocolate bar for 50 cents. I could buy four for two bucks. And I did. Anyway, we are just creatures of the engineering that is designed to not only get us to buy things that we don't need, but buy the things that give the store the greatest profit margin. That's how it's all worked. We're just, we're just rats in the maze. That's all we are, chasing that piece of cheese. And during all news mornings this morning with Christine and Luke, uh, they talked about that study from the University of Guelph and the professor there who talked about loss leaders, right? Get them into the store with the promise of a good price on product A and then hope they buy products B, C, or D. I know I'm not giving you new information on this, but please make sure when you go grocery shopping, you go on a full stomach because if you don't, that's when you are more than most likely to make all of the impulse purchases. This shopping tip brought to you by the Mike Farwell Show. This is the 12 o'clock talk back hour on City News 570. Let's get right back to the phones on the 12 o'clock talk back. 519-570-2545. Star 570. five seventy fifty seven fifteen 570 5715 Greg, good afternoon. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. Good.
11: So, uh, I also like a crunchy bar at, uh, when I'm going through the checkout sometimes. And Home Depot is forty eight. Come on now. Yep. Yeah.
3: Boy, they must know their audience, eh?
11: I was quite surprised because I refused to pay two fifty for a chocolate bar. You know, you can go to a dollar store or somewhere cheaper, but yeah, I was surprised—a dollar forty-eight Home Depot.
3: You see, the only problem at the dollar store, Greg, is you're limited in terms of the selection, right? Right. But and and I've become—I don't know what it is about the Crunchy Bar. I don't know how I accidentally ate one several months ago, but now it's like number one with a bullet. I was a Wonder Bar guy, now I'm a Crunchy guy.
11: I was always crispy crunch
3: and uh, crunchy. Okay. Crispy crunch I could never get into. For some reason, I just didn't do it. I've gone through a whole... Like, I mean, we could spend the rest of this hour, Greg, talking about my chocolate bar habit and how I've gone from one favorite to another. But I guess I have to start going to Home Depot for the $1.48 chocolate bars.
11: There you go. (laughs) Have you not got the uh, heating fixed in your uh,
3: studio yet? Oh, good grief. Do you want to go down that path?
11: It's well, I know some experts in the HVAC field I could refer your landlord or your boss. Like That's been going on far too long.
3: It's, it, I agree with you wholeheartedly, my friend. And when uh, guests to the studio and fellow co-workers poke their head in here and say, oh my gosh, it's hot, you know it's not just me. So I'm, I'm trying my best, but no, if you can hear the noise in the background, it's because my door is propped open again.
11: <laughs> so is it the radio station's responsibility or the landlord's?
3: Uh, I believe it is our uh, property owner. Yeah, we've had people. I, don't it. it's just, it's just I know a control issue. I we've had people crawling through ducts out on the roof using computers to update or reprogram software. I'm telling you, there have. It's almost like NASA in here, and yet I still bake every single day. Yeah,
11: I bet you there's an easy solution
3: to it. I would like to think so. I mean, we put people on the moon, Greg. I've heard of this. And yet, we can't seem to get this sorted out.
11: Well, I can send you a referral if you need a, a good company.
3: Please feel free. The email is mike at 570news.com. I'd love to hear it.
11: Mike at 570news. Okay. Thanks, Greg. Okay, bye for
3: now. Cheers. Enjoy your day. I love that. I love the recommendation on the dollar forty eight chocolate bar. I really was caught off guard when I bought one a little while back. I, I did the temptation point of purchase sale at the pharmacy near my house and they were 3 for $5.50 so i'm like well how can you resist right that's like what a buck 75 each give or take and i took it home and my beloved seized me with another chocolate bar no surprise like this is a regular occurrence but then she opened the fridge layer she's like what you got 3 i said well they were 3 for 550 yeah i got 3 and so i was craving not too long after. And I thought, I'm just going to stop in and pick up another three. But the three for deal was done. And then it was like $2.39 or something. And I'm, I'm always low. The one day, one day I came to work, and I uh, complained and kidvetched about having gone to the fast food drive through the night before, and how much it cost. And somebody emailed and said, nobody cares how much your fast food dinner costs. Like, that's what it costs these days. Deal with it or don't go to the drive through So I didn't want to make a big deal of it, but it just randomly popped into my head because I do remember the days. Here's the story. I, Oh, my goodness. I've always had a sweet tooth. You know this. And when I was delivering newspapers and earning money for the first time, I would pay myself. My money went into the savings and then what I had that I could use for myself. And I'm not even joking. I would go regularly to the corner store near my home to buy four chocolate bars after lunch so I grew up in an era and close enough to the school where I would go home for lunch have lunch then I would take my two dollars over to the corner store buy four four chocolate bars and I would proceed to eat them throughout the afternoon (laughs) kids don't do this like it's not healthy I don't think four chocolate bars a day but that's what I would do and that's because they were 50 cents a piece they're not 50 cents a piece anymore uh, back to the phones on the 12 o'clock talk back hour. Toll free Jay, my man.
2: Well, I just wanted to uh, mention that people have gotten way too complacent with uh, the sending emails to each other instead of using uh, landlines and answering machines. And this became a problem today when uh, I wasn't informed that somebody coming to look after something. For me, uh, with medical, a medical situation.
3: They sent an email instead of calling you?
2: Uh, Exactly. Yeah. And I need to, and I can't use computers either. Uh, And I know you have some people coming from the group for the blind tomorrow uh, from CCB at 1030.
3: Wait. Oh yes, that's going to be on my show. I thought you were saying you had somebody coming oh, over. I do. They're oh well, group. it's like, well, Jay, yep. tomorrow at ten thirty on this show, we're going to be talking about White Cane Week. Yep. Look at this.
2: You, I don't want to be cantankerous about this.
3: You can be cantankerous about whatever you want.
2: Exactly. so I just wanted to let you know how people do have answering machines and landlines. The person that came to see me came from Flamborough. If I wouldn't have been home. I wasn't even aware this person was coming. It would have been a wasted trip. I get it. So we need to always be mindful people have lane lines for a reason, answer machines for a reason. Check your answer machine every day.
3: Jay, I love it. Thanks very much for the call. I am trying to take a page out of my good friend Paul Fixter's book. He said to me the other day, because he was texting back and forth with somebody, and then he just decided to phone, because he says, I would rather talk to you for five minutes than text back and forth for half an hour. He's so right, so I'm trying to do that more. But yeah, the phone still works, and it's a pretty effective means of communication. And yes, to shamelessly self-promote something that's coming up on the show tomorrow, to which Jay already alluded, the Canadian Council of the Blind is going to be on the show tomorrow morning at 10.30 to talk to us about White Cane Week. You'll learn a little more on the Farwell Show tomorrow. We're going to take a quick break, come back with more of the 12 o'clock Talk Back Hour. This is City News 570. Final minutes for us today before we turn things over to Rob Snow. And now you know, Rob will take us one until three this afternoon, then all news afternoons with Paul McPhee and Aaron Anderson. And in a couple minutes' time at 1 o'clock, we will get you an update from the City News Centre. I want to share an email from John, who writes to Mike at 570news.com. Mike, in light of Toronto having been announced as one of the city's hosting 2026 FIFA World Cup games, I'd like to wish Cristiano Ronaldo a very happy 39th birthday today and hope he continues to crush his opponents well into his 40s and hopefully plays in the next World Cup. Viva Portugal! Thank you, John. John, thank you very much for the email. It's great to hear from you. And I appreciate your support for Portugal in the World Cup, even though Toronto is going to be hosting some of those games, right? And the first Canadian men's game on Canadian soil will be hosted in Toronto. But you cheer for whoever you want, and I get it. Uh, Quickly to Kara as we wrap things up today. Hi, Kara.
13: Hi, how are you? I'm
3: excellent. How are you?
13: Good, thank you. Uh, The reason why I called in today is, I I believe it was about a week ago, um, you talked about custom license plates, and I know on CTV Toronto, they were talking about custom license plates.
3: Well, we talked about it first, like we do everything else, Kara. I just want you to know that. (laughs) Of
13: course, you guys are first. Okay. Um, Well, the reason for the call is that I was denied a custom license plate. I'm a veteran, and I got okayed. Uh, through the Legion to get a veterans' custom license plate. However, when I went to the ministry, um, I got okayed for a Me Too license plate. There's multiple Me Too license plates already out there, so I had to pick a MT000. That was the one they okayed me on at first. Then three months later, I receive a notice saying it's too political and we're denying this request.
3: That is crazy, and I wish I had more time to hear more of the story. Kara. I got to get to news. We got to get to Rob's show, but please call me back again, and let's talk about that. 12 o'clock talk back hour every day from noon until 1 on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570.